0: Thursday, June 7th, 2012. Okay, we're going to do our light edition today. As we continue our survey of heresies from church history, today we'll start part one of a two part series on the Aryans. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we do the cleanup work. Now, I've been uh, playing uh, a series of lectures presented by Phil Johnson uh, on a survey of ancient heresies. And if you're paying attention, you know, in listening to these, then what you're seeing is is that it's like there's nothing new under the sun. It's like the same heresies are still around today. That's the whole idea. You become familiar with, well, the original heresy, and you'll begin to spot it in today's teaching from various teachers. Now, it's important to know something about postmodernity. And that is this, is that postmodernity likes to... Construct its heresies Frankenstein style, and so what happens is is that in today's religious marketplace, uh, the the Christian heretics, and I'm putting the word Christian in quotes here, Christian heretics today, uh, because of the influence of post modernity, oftentimes don't have pure strains of the heresy that they're teaching, and so what'll happen is is that they'll grab elements from. Socinianism, the Arian heresy, Gnosticism, and, and other things, and kind of cobble it together Frankenstein style. So you may have um, a, her- a heretic today who's grabbed the arm of Arius, the head of the Socinians, the leg of the Arians, you get what I'm saying, and constructed a heretical Frankenstein monster and just patched patched it all together. So um as you know if you're going to be discerning in today's day and age keep in mind that very few heretics uh follow a pure strain of the heresies that they uh that the, that they're te- you know of the ancient church you know they've grabbed different pieces of it and cobbled t- it together so that's just something to keep in mind it makes. Today's time and age well it makes it just so that it's a little bit tricky and what's even funnier is is that if you can call it funny funny like in a very sad and tragic kind of way is that uh in seeker driven churches because of the lack of depth of biblical teaching there uh they're susceptible to all of these heresies and more and what'll happen is is that you you oftentimes can find guys. Or gals uh, and/or gals in seeker-driven churches, uh, one person might be teaching a particular heresy, and then another person will be teaching a different one. And neither one of them are being rebuked, called into check, uh, you know, uh, told what the truth is. And so it's possible under the same roof, you have coexisting all kinds of different heresies. <laughs> it's just a mess. Anyway. So uh, what we're going to be doing today is, uh, as we continue to work through this survey of historical heresies, uh, the, we're going to begin the first lecture today on the, uh, on the Arian heresy, and we'll finish that next week uh, as we work through this. So without any further ado, here is Phil Johnson in part one of his lectures on the Arian heresy. Here we go.
1: We're on our third heresy this week. We studied the Judaizers which was heresy that really racked the church in the earliest years, and we read about that in the New Testament. Then last week we talked about the Gnostics, which was a later heresy that you see the beginnings of in the New Testament, but didn't come to fruition until the second century, really. If you're new to Grace Life or if you're just visiting this week or whatever, you've come at a good time, because we're in the midst of this study on the ancient heresies, and we're finding that it's really a, a timely study. Every error that we've looked at so far is still alive in some form in the church today. And that's true, I think, of every wrong doctrine and deviant tendency that I can think of in the history of the church. If you look, you will be able to find representatives of those errors in the church today. Sometimes large groups who believe to those. Uh, the, The fact is that Satan really doesn't have to come up with new errors because people are ignorant of history and people are ignorant of doctrine and keep falling back into the same errors. We can't forget what church history teaches us. But you know, ignorance is not the only problem. Perhaps an even greater problem today is that too many Christians lack the boldness to confront error for what it is. Even the most serious errors this is true of, if an error becomes popular enough, it can claim a certain immunity from criticism. Because our society, and even in the church, we place too much value on tolerance and not enough on truth. We love peace more than we love purity. We often think that it's better to be agreeable than it is to be aggressive for the truth. And that sort of thinking is a plague on the church today. If the early church had been as tolerant as we are of error, Christianity would have died out long before it ever got a foothold. And in fact, as we'll see this morning, that very thing almost occurred in the third century and the the early fourth century. This was a time when the church worldwide very nearly capitulated to error. And except for the efforts of one very courageous and bold, determined defender of the truth, one man who stood out against the world, we'd all be Jehovah's Witnesses today. I'm not exaggerating. One of the things you'll notice as we study these heresies is how subtly error tries to encroach on the church and how quickly it attempts to gain popularity always at the grassroots level. You remember when we had a cult that came and stood outside on Roscoe Boulevard and passed out literature and uh, handed these brochures and letters and stuff out to people as they arrived here at Grace for a worship service? You remember that? I remember it. I suppose I was as annoyed that day as anyone, especially since their literature specifically targeted me. (laughs) But to be perfectly frank, that approach doesn't really frighten me as much as uh, the subtle approach. That's not the way error spreads. Almost everybody recognizes that sort of direct, confrontive attack on the truth. We see that as divisive, we see it as cultish, and it is. It wears a sinister face. And most of us immediately see the evil behind it. I don't think those people were able to get one convert from all the people at Grace Church. But error is most deadly when it masquerades as truth. These wacko fanatics that stand outside and pass out literature will probably never succeed in helping a major error get a foothold in our church. I don't really fear that. But what frightens me are these subtle deviations from the truth that can creep in from the inside, and they come in wearing an angelic face. That's how the heresy that we're going to look at today made its way into the church. It arose from within the church. It spread by quiet infiltration. It gained strength really because of the personal charisma of the teachers of this doctrine. This heresy took advantage of a climate of tolerance, and it developed to massive proportions before any strong voice rose up to oppose it. And this is one of Satan's favorite tactics because he loves to disguise himself, Scripture tells us, as an angel of light. Now, if we're going to be discerning people, we need to understand that the popularity of a movement is not necessarily proof of God's blessing. The fact that a a certain teaching is very widespread does not necessarily mean that it's true. In fact, the opposite may be true. The more popular a movement becomes, the more it needs to be carefully scrutinized The more it needs to be held in light of Scripture and tested and examined. Scripture commands that we examine all things and hold fast to that which is good. That's why this series in Grace Life, we're talking about discernment. We're trying to equip ourselves to be discerning people. But we have to realize that these errors come against us too. We have to not think that simply because we're in this sheltered environment of Grace Church that we're impervious to errors. Now, this is the third week in our study, and I already reviewed. We went over the Judaizers the first week. This was a cult that tried to bring Old Testament legalism into the gospel. Last week, we talked about the Gnostics, and Gnosticism tried to do the opposite. It tried to bring paganism in and blend it with the gospel, and I pointed out a couple of contrasts between those two heresies. You remember last week, the Galatian legalists were trying to water down the gospel with Old Testament Judaism. The Gnostics were trying to water down the gospel with paganism. The Judaizers were eager to hold on to the past. The Gnostics were too eager to let go of the past. The Judaizers were legalists. The Gnostics tended to be licentious. So in many ways, they were opposites. And we talked about how the pendulum often swings between opposites. But both of those errors, Gnosticism and Judaism, had this in common. They corrupted the gospel. They corrupted the doctrine of justification by faith. They both made salvation contingent on something in the sinner himself, something that the sinner does, rather than seeing that we're justified because of what God does on our behalf. And all heresies have that in common. All heresies boil down to that, ultimately. Ultimately, every heresy teaches that there's something in the sinner that must be done for redemption. True Christianity alone teaches that what needs to be done for our justification is done by God on our behalf through Christ. So, demonic doctrine takes many faces, but it always has that one aspect in common. You have to guard on all sides, because otherwise, while you're on guard against legalism you be attacked by libertinism. While you're fighting the enemies on the outside, they rise up and attack from the inside. Now, today we turn our attention to this heresy called Arianism. I'll spell it for you since I forgot the overhead. A-R-I-A-N-I-S-M. Arianism. This is not Arianism like the German super race, you know, the nation thing. This is spelled differently. That's A-R-Y. This is A r i. A N I S M, Arianism. It's named after a fellow named Arius, A R I U S. And again, don't tell Darlene I forgot the overhead. (laughs) Arianism was a flat out attack on the deity of Christ. The Arians claimed that Jesus Christ was a created being. They thought that he was higher than humanity, but something lower than God. That's the essence of Arianism. That's what Arianism teaches. Now, you'll recall that Gnostic doctrine also attacked the person of Christ. But the Gnostics did this from the fringe of the church. They they were heretics who generally were outsiders, people unafraid to attack the apostolic tradition and place themselves outside the church. In fact, their approach was to draw people away from the church and into their little factions. And so the Gnostics had these little factions that they wanted to get people drawn into. Arianism took a different approach, the opposite approach, bringing the false doctrine right into the church. And the Arian goal from the very beginning was to get the stamp of orthodoxy on this false doctrine. They wanted the bishops of the church to say, this is the apostolic tradition. Arianism is truth. And the Arian controversy arose at a very crucial moment in church history, I want to examine this controversy in four points. I'll give you my outline right now. I always do that up front. So if you're taking notes, you get this. Four points. First, I want to look at the historical setting. Second, I'll describe the heresy itself. Third, we'll, we'll recount the controversy that arose. And then finally, I want to give you a biblical answer to this false doctrine. So my point one is the setting, the setting, the historical setting. Now, for the first three centuries after Christ, Christianity was a kind of a minority religion, and Christians lived constantly under the threat of persecution. But if you recall world history from your high school years, you'll know that in the year 312, the emperor, a man named Constantine, suddenly converted to Christianity. And the following year, 313, the years won't be on the test, by the way, but if you want to take them down, I'll give them to you. 313... Constantine issued the Edict of Milan, the Edict of Milan, which for the first time ever gave toleration to Christianity as a legitimate religion. This is the first time the Roman Empire recognized Christianity as a legitimate religion. Up to that point, it was outlawed. And this Edict Edict of Milan also gave to Christians certain tax breaks, political incentives. And the effect was to make an incentive for Roman citizens to convert to Christianity and Christianity almost overnight became the de facto religion of Rome. Now after his conversion to Christianity, Constantine won some tremendous military victories, almost miraculously, and he attributed his military victories to Christ and his conversion to Christianity and he managed to finally unify the Roman Empire after a long period of decline and division. Constantine then found out that the church he had adopted had some very serious internal strife. The Aryan controversy was already beginning to brew. Here's how this came about. At the end of the 2nd century, before Constantine's time, at the very end of the 3rd century, the 200s, there was a heresy that was quite widespread known as Sabellianism. This is not one of the heresies we're going to study in this series, but I mention it because it's important. Sabellianism... This is the gist of what the Sibelians believed. They taught that there is one God, they emphasized the unity of God, and they taught that he appears at different times in different modes. In the Old Testament, they said, we see God as Jehovah, the father figure. In the New Testament, you see him as the son. And now in the church age, we see him as the Holy Spirit, And Sabellians claimed that this is one God, but he just appears in different modes. And for that reason, Sabellians are sometimes called modalists. You've heard that expression, modalism? That's what this describes. There is a group today, by the way, if you want to keep up with these modern heresies, the Oneness Pentecostals. You ever run into a Oneness Pentecostal? They're the group that believes that you should only baptize in Jesus' name, not in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they have this great emphasis on this modal idea of God. They're basically Sibelians. They believe that God is the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, but all at the same time, they just appear differently at different times. It's a modalism. That was a very popular heresy at the end of the 200s, the third century. And when we first meet this man named Arius, he's being ordained as a, what they call a presbyter in Alexandria, Egypt, the year 311. So you see, this timing is right at the same time as the conversion of Constantine. Arius is being ordained. He, he comes on the scene dressed as an angel of light. He had a reputation as an opponent of heresies, and he was the nemesis of the Sabellians. He fought Sabellianism and exposed that heresy and debunked it and argued forcefully against it. He was the enemy of the Sabellians. Now, a presbyter, this office that he was ordained to, is like a second-level bishop. He's like a junior elder would be in our church. And the archbishop to whom he was accountable there in Alexandria was a man named Alexander. Alexander was a godly bishop, well-known for his teaching. And after he was in this office of presbyter for a while, Arius heard Alexander, this godly man, teaching... That Jesus shares the very same nature as God. And Arius accused Alexander of teaching Sabellianism. Because Arius had concluded that the only answer to this modal Sabellianism was to teach that Jesus has a nature that's totally different, totally distinct from the Father. And that's what he taught. In other words, Arius had reacted to Sabellianism with the opposite error. Arius was just as wrong as the heresy he was. He was confronting. Both of them were in error, and because Arius had gone to an extreme, he didn't recognize the orthodoxy in what Alexander was teaching, it, and he rela- he labeled it as a heresy. And in essence, Arius had already denied the deity of Christ. He was denying the deity of Christ. Now, at this point, I'm going to teach you one Greek word. I want this is the only Greek word I'll give you today, but you have to you have to. This will be on the test. And even if you don't know anything about Greek, it's important to to get to know this word. The word is homoousia. I'll spell it for you. Again, I don't have a transparency. Homoousia. This is Greek. H-O-M-O-O-U-S-I-A. H-O-M-O-O-U-S-I-A. Homoousia. It's from two Greek words. Homo, which means what? The same. And ousia, meaning substance. And this is what Alexander was teaching that Christ and the Father are homoousia, of the same substance. He taught that the Latin word would be consubstantial. We say that about God. He's consubstantial with the Father. That's what we mean. They are of one essence, one substance. And when Arius labeled that kind of doctrine, Sabellianism, Alexander tried his best to reason with Arius for a while and finally had to excommunicate him. So the effect is... Arius accuses his boss, Alexander, of teaching heresy. His boss, Alexander, excommunicates Arius. Now, there are six men you have to keep straight in this story. I'll give them to you. I don't want to get too complex here, but this is great stuff. This is really a great story. But you have to keep these six guys straight. Three of them you've already met. The first is Arius. He's the man who gave his name to this heresy. Second is Alexander, this godly bishop who excommunicated Arius and sparked this whole controversy. Third, Constantine the Great, the emperor, first Christian emperor of Rome. You've met those three guys already. Three more. Number four is Eusebius of Caesarea. Eusebius spelled E-U-S-E-B-I-U-S. You've heard of Eusebius. He's a famous church historian. You often see him quoted. Eusebius said this. This is who they're talking about, Eusebius of Caesarea. He was a contemporary and a friend of Arius. And he was tolerant of Arian doctrine. And at one point, he was at least partly sympathetic to the doctrine. But it wouldn't be fair to class Eusebius as an Arian because he never really fully embraced the heresy. But he, he remained, I think all his life, a sympathetic friend to Arius. The fifth guy has the same name, unfortunately, Eusebius, but he's a different Eusebius. This is Eusebius of Nicomedia, and he is an Arian. This guy was in a league with Arius all the way, and he was one of those who was behind the scenes a leader of the Arian fac- faction. So you have to keep these two guys, these two Eusebiuses straight. I'll call him Eusebius the Arian, he's the one you've never heard of before, and Eusebius the historian, he's the famous one. And the sixth person, The last guy you're going to meet, what? He's not Eusebius. (laughs) He's the hero of our story. You haven't met him yet, but his name is Athanasius. Athanasius, A-T-H-A-N-A-S-I-U-S, Athanasius, A-T-H-A-N-A-S-I-U-S. And it was Athanasius who, in the end, became the human instrument by which God graciously kept the whole church from sliding into the morass of this false doctrine, this heresy known as Arianism. At one point, Athanasius stood all alone against everybody else in the world when virtually all the bishops, every bishop in the Catholic Church worldwide, had either compromised with or embraced Arianism Athanasius was the lone holdout. He was the one guy who kept saying, this is heresy. This is wrong. This is not true Christianity. And there's a familiar Latin slogan, Athanasius Contra Mundum. It means Athanasius against the world. Athanasius' friends came to him and said, Athanasius, the whole world is against you. He said, then Athanasius is against the world. And that's where this saying came from, Athanasius mundum, Athanasius against the world. This is an amazing story, actually, what happened. Somebody should make this into a movie. Now, bear in mind the chronology. Arius is ordained in 311. I told you that already. Constantine is converted in 312. Less than a decade later, about 318 or 319, is when Arius declares that his bishop Alexander is teaching Sibelianism. And after two or three years of desperately trying to reason with Arius, in about 321, Alexander convenes a council and he excommunicates Arius. This starts the whole controversy. Arius is kicked out of Alexandria, kicked out of his position in the church. And at about this very same time, Constantine was finished with all his battles. He'd managed politically, at least, to unite the Roman Empire. His hope was that the church would be the vehicle for the Roman Empire to be truly united. And so he had great expectations for the church, and he thought, the church will be the basis for our unity and so on. And when he began to look at what was going on in the church, he saw that there was no unity among his own bishops. He was amazed to discover that these bishops and and presbyters like Arius, were fighting against one another. And not only that, this particular disagreement, this dispute between Arius and Alexander, in just a very short time, a matter of a couple of years, spread throughout the world. It became the subject of dialogue throughout the Roman Empire, from Egypt to Palestine. You could go into the market and you'd hear people discussing this theological issue. They did that just like we, you or I, would talk about some boneheaded football play on Monday morning. They were talking about Arius and Alexander. That was the subject of their discussion. Constantine saw this. He's the emperor. He wants to unify the empire and he's really troubled by it. And so he did something totally unprecedented. This had never before happened. For the first time ever, a Roman emperor intervenes in a theological dispute. And what Constantine did was write a a joint letter. He wrote one letter and sent it to both Arius and Alexander. And his letter said this. We, We still have the letter. Here's a quote from it. He says to them, give me back my quiet days and carefree nights. Do not let me spend the rest of my days joylessly. That was his appeal to them. This was his proposed solution. He says to these two guys, look, drop your differences. Drop this argument over doctrine. In essence, he was telling them that external unity, organizational unity, was more important than this dispute over doctrine. Now, there are a lot of people today who share that perspective, aren't there? They have the idea that no point of doctrine, no matter how important, no matter how essential it is to the gospel message, no point of doctrine is worth fighting over. A lot of people feel that way. and. Let's be honest, that, that attitude sounds very amiable and tolerant. It's open-minded. And there were people in Constantine's day just like there are in our day who were willing to take that tolerant approach with Arius. After all, this was a, this was a new era for the church. Constantine had just ended, for the first time ever, all the persecutions against Christianity. The church had an unprecedented opportunity to flourish and prosper throughout the whole empire without external oppression. Why should peace be destroyed at just this moment by internal strife? We can sympathize with how they would have been feeling. We can sympathize with those concerns. And in fact, let's be honest, anybody who delights in conflict is a fool. So the emperor was not alone in his longing for peace. Eusebius, the historian, the famous guy, he wrote this. At the outset of the controversy, he writes this. This is from Eusebius' history. He says, well, who knows how the soul is united with the body and how it leaves it? And yet, we venture to inquire into the eternal essence of the Godhead? Christ says, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life, not he who knows how Christ is begotten of the Father, Were the latter the case, no man could attain to salvation. Do you see what Eusebius is saying? He's saying, look, we don't understand metaphysics of how the metaphysics of how the soul enters the body and leaves it. That's that's on the human level. Even on the human level, we don't understand metaphysics. Why should we debate the metaphysics of God? Why should we debate how whether Christ is eternally begotten of the Father and whether Christ is eternally God? Jesus didn't say, he that understands this theology has eternal life. Jesus said, he that believes on me has eternal life. You hear people using that very same argument today. It's to say, look, the fine points of doctrine are not important. Jesus just said, whoever believes on me has eternal life. That was Eusebius's argument. He could have fit well into 20th century Christianity. In fact, the 20th century, maybe he's 19th century, Edward Gibbon, historian, the man who wrote The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, the famous book, Edward Gibbon studied this whole episode of Arius and Athanasius, and he said that for him, for Gibbon personally, the very credibility of the gospel was destroyed when he studied this episode and saw that Christians, who for the first time ever were free from persecution, were immediately prepared to fight, in Gibbon's words, over an iota, over a fine point. And that kind of thinking is definitely back in vogue in our generation. If you think that any point of truth is worth fighting for or dying for, you're certain to be labeled a fanatic. That is precisely how the majority of Christians at the beginning of the 4th century viewed Alexander's efforts to condemn Arius' heresy. Alexander, the godly man who taught the orthodox view of Christ, quickly became the bad guy in this dispute. Popular opinion said Arius should be permitted to teach his views without any sort of challenge. Other people who want to believe differently are welcome to. If you want to believe your thing, I'll believe my thing, that's fine. But everybody seemed to think that the organizational unity of the church was what was important to protect. And this organizational unity, this external unity, virtually everybody thought, was too important to compromise over a point of doctrine. Now that's the historical setting in which Arianism arose. Now let's take a look at the heresy itself, and this will shed some light on why Arianism needed to be opposed. This is my point too, the heresy. Arius's error had some things in common with the Gnostic ideas that we spoke of last week. You remember how I described... The views of this guy, Philo. Philo was a Jewish philosopher that lived in Alexandria, Arius' hometown. Philo lived there, though, during the time of Christ. He was a contemporary of Christ. And Philo developed this view of God by blending the Old Testament and Greek philosophy, where he had God who was too transcendent, too majestic to have actual contact with his creation. And so there was a mediator character, the Logos. Remember I I explained all that and how that fit into Gnosticism? Well, it fit well with Arius, too. And Arius, living in Alexandria as well, 300 years later, shared Philo's opinion that that God is too exalted to have contact with his creation, with the material world. So Arius devised this view of Christ that made Christ a created being, neither God nor human, but a mediator between God and humanity. According to Arius, Jesus was some sort of demigod, the firstborn of all creation. Scripture uses that phrase. Arius keyed on that phrase and said, Christ is the firstborn of all creation. He's higher than the other creatures. He's godlike, but he's a creature nonetheless. The interesting thing about Arius is he was even willing to say, yes, Jesus is God, but he said he's a God. He's not the God. He's a created being with godlike qualities. And so it's okay in Arius' system. He said it's okay to worship him as a God because he's a godlike creature. It's okay to pray to him. It's okay to bow to him and worship. But don't see him as the God because he's not the God. He's a created being. That's what Arius taught. Interestingly, this is the very same doctrine with one slight modification, the very same doctrine held by modern Jehovah's Witnesses. And that is that they go a bit further than Arius did in denying the deity of Christ. They would say he's not God in any sense. He's just not God. He's a created being. He's the highest of all the archangels. Other than that, Jehovah's Witness doctrine and Arian doctrine is exactly the same doctrine. And in fact, Arius used precisely the same arguments that modern Jehovah's Witnesses use. Like the Jehovah's Witnesses, Arius based all his arguments about the nature of Christ on these scripture verses that are designed to teach us about Christ's humanity. Now we studied the humanity of Christ a couple of years ago in here. And in fact, I think there's a tape over there of that message on the humanity of Christ. You may remember that, but here are some of the key texts. I'll give them to you. Luke 2:40, which tells us about the child Christ. He grew and waxed strong in spirit filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. That's Luke 2.40. Luke 2.52, very similar. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Both Arius and the Jehovah's Witnesses point to those verses and say, if he's God, how could he be increasing in wisdom? How how could that be? That's that's not God. This is describing a creature. They go to John 4.6, which describes Jesus at the well in Samaria where he met the woman. And John 4.6 says this, Jesus, therefore being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well. They said, well, if he's God, how could he be weary? How could God get tired? That's not God, that's a creature. John 19, 28, hanging on the cross, Jesus said, I thirst. John 13, 21, which describes the scene in the upper room, the night of Jesus' betrayal, he's there with his apostles. And scripture tells us, John 13, 21, he was troubled in his spirit. They say, how could God be troubled in his spirit? That's not God. That's a creature. Matthew 24, 36. Jesus, this is a hard one too. Jesus, speaking of the timing of his return, says this. Of that day and of that hour knoweth no man, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Jesus says, and if you look at the cross-reference in Mark, Jesus basically saying, I don't know the time of my return." Now, Arius pointed to that. The Jehovah's Witnesses point to that and say, how can this be God? If he's God, he's omniscient. He says, here, there's something he doesn't know. He's not God. And so Arius pointed to those verses as the biblical proof that Jesus is not God. That was the sum of his argument, those verses. And a few others. Arius pointed out that Jesus prayed, he wept, he matured, he increased in wisdom, Hebrews 3. Verse 2 says, he was faithful to him that appointed him, which seems to make him subservient to the Father. Jesus himself said, and this was the big key text for Arius, John fourteen twenty eight. Jesus said, my father is greater than I. Arius says, there it is. In Jesus' own words, my father is greater than I. Now, all of that, when you add it up, seems a pretty impressive array of proof texts, doesn't it? Remember, in those days, you couldn't go to the bookshack and pick up a book that answered all those arguments. So Arius' doctrine posed a very difficult dilemma for the church. If Arius was right, people who worshipped God, who worshipped Jesus as God, people who thought he was the eternal God, if Arius is right, they were guilty of idolatry and polytheism. But if Arius was wrong, his doctrine was a serious abomination because it robs Christ of his glory. and It makes him a mere creature. So if Arius was wrong, he was worshiping a false Christ. If Arius was right, most of the church throughout its history had worshiped a false Christ. <laughs> and unfortunately, nobody in Arius' time, nobody in the 4th century saw the issues that clearly. Almost nobody except one man, Athanasius, really looked at this and said, we're talking about two different Christs here. We're talking about, therefore, two different religions. Do we worship the Christ of Arius, who's something less than God, or do we worship the Christ that the church has always exalted as God? It's two different religions, and almost nobody saw that, because from Constantine on down, the goal of the political leaders and church leaders alike was to avoid this conflict, not to resolve it, And this nearly resulted in a spiritual disaster of major proportions for the church. I'll move on to my next point. This is my point three, the controversy. I really struggled over how much detail to go on on this, but it's such a fascinating story, and I think you ought to be familiar with it. After Arius was excommunicated by Alexander, and he's exiled from Alexandria. This is a city in Egypt. Arius is kicked out, so he's put on the road. He's wandering around. And he begins a letter-writing campaign to both friends and critics far and wide. And a couple of Arius' letters have been preserved in a couple of ancient histories. And there's one to Eusebius the Arian. This is not the famous Eusebius, but the other guy, the Arian. And there's one letter he wrote to Alexander, the godly bishop who excommunicated him. These two letters give us sort of a window into how skilled Arius was in disguising his heresy. For example, this is his uh, letter to Eusebius of Nicodemia. Now, this is not the historian, but the Arian Eusebius. Arius writes this. He says, the bishop, he's talking about Alexander, the bishop greatly wastes and persecutes us and leaves no stone unturned against us. He has driven us out of the city as atheists because we do not concur in what he publicly preaches, namely God always, the son always, as the father, so the son, The son coexists unbegotten with God. Now listen to this. Listen to how skilled he is here. He he keys in on this idea that he claims Alexander is teaching that Christ is unbegotten. You see the problem immediately because scripture calls him the only begotten son of God. And Arius is saying he's not begotten, meaning, I mean, Alexander was saying he's not begotten, meaning he's not created. Arius keys in on this. He says, but we say and believe and have taught and do teach That the Son is not unbegotten, and that he does not derive his subsistence from any matter, but that by his own will and counsel, he has subsisted before time and before ages as perfect God, only begotten and unchangeable. Arius is taking extreme care to phrase his teaching in orthodox language, but let me continue. I'm going to take up right where I left off. Actually, I'll go back a sentence so you can hear what he's really saying. Listen to the whole thing. The Son has subsisted before time, before ages, as the perfect God, only begotten and unchangeable, and before he was begotten or created or purposed or established, he was not. For he was not unbegotten. We are persecuted because we say that the Son has a beginning, but that God is without a beginning. This is the cause of our persecution. So he explains his heresy. You can see how he tried to couch it in orthodox language. To Alexander, the bishop who excommunicated him, Arius wrote this. He says, and he's writing now to his enemy, the godly bishop who's excommunicated him, Arius writes to him and he says, there are three subsistences. In other words, three substances, three essences that he's saying Christ and and the Holy Spirit and God are not of the same essence. There are three essences. And God being the cause of all things, is unbegun and altogether solitary. But the Son, being begotten apart from time by the Father, and being created and founded before ages, begotten apart from time and before all things, alone was made to subsist by the Father. For He is not eternal, or co-eternal, or co-unoriginate with the Father, nor has His being together with the Father. But... Arius says, if the terms from him, from the womb, and I came forth from the father and I am come, if those terms be understood by some to mean as if a part of him, one in essence as an issue, then the father is according to them compounded and divisible and alterable and material. See, I don't know if you follow that. It's a little bit technical, but what Arius is doing is quoting Alexander's words back to him and saying, you're teaching Sabellianism. You, by saying that Christ and the Holy Spirit are of one essence with the Father, you're saying then that the Father is not indivisible. The Father, God, is is compound. He's divisible. He's basically saying you're worshiping multiple gods. Arius, just like the Jehovah's Witnesses today, is insisting that Jesus is a created being. He had a beginning. And according to Arius in this letter... Arius claims that his view alone does justice to the person of Christ. Arius is saying, my view is truth and the others are wrong. But I want you to see his duplicity. He's, He's subtly very cunning. He insists that his is true doctrine and all the others are false. But in his letter, and in fact in his letter to Eusebius, he claims that all other teachings regarding the person of Christ are, these are his words, quote, they're impieties to which we cannot listen, even though heretics threaten us with a thousand deaths. You see, Arius is saying the, this, the normal view of Christ and God and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, the Trinitarian view, which hadn't been totally formulated at that time, but he, this is what he's dealing with. The normal view of Christianity says is an impiety. It's an impiety. It's a blasphemy. It's against God. He says that on the one hand. And he portrays himself as a noble and courageous man who's taking a stand for the truth. But here's his duplicity. When the time comes for him to take a stand and really fight for this doctrine and defend it, if he really believes this is truth and this alone is truth, he ought to take a stand for it. But when the time came and he had the opportunity, what he actually argued for was a creed that would accommodate not only his view, but the other one as well. His tendency... Inevitably, and this is the tendency of all heretics, was not to draw the lines clearly, but to gloss over his, heretic, his heresy with, with subtle and ambiguous words. Now, I mentioned earlier how Constantine and, and the others wanted to quell this controversy. They wrote to Alexander, they wrote to Arius, asked them just to reconcile. Put your differences aside, forget it. Constantine just didn't want the controversy. That was his stance. Most of the bishops worldwide shared this view. They just didn't want the controversy. They were hesitant to reject Arius because he was popular and well-known. He was a gifted teacher. And it was politically incorrect to reject him. So most of the bishops acted as if Alexander's excommunication was just too harsh of a sentence against Arius. And even though they didn't share Arius' doctrine, they pleaded with Alexander and the anti-Aryans for tolerance. They said, just, just let's cut these guys some slack. You don't have to attack this as heresy. And although Arius was exiled from Egypt, he found wherever he went a warm reception in most other churches worldwide. And he took advantage of this opportunity and began to disseminate this heresy. And that's how Arianism was able to spread, even though Arius was under church discipline. You see the subtlety of this? You see the danger of the attitude of saying, this is not worth fighting for? And finally, in hopes of resolving the issue, because the controversy was only getting bigger and bigger, the emperor, Constantine, called a council, church council. This is the first ecumenical council ever at Nicaea. You've heard of the Nicene council? This is it. Nicaea is a city next to Constantinople. This was the first, we call it ecumenical council, meaning it had representatives from the church worldwide, men from all over the world, all the major bishops in the world, came at at the expense of the Roman Empire to this council in Nicaea to try to settle this issue. The council convened on June 14th, 325. That date won't be on the test, but I give it to you just so we precisely set this thing. This is the year 325, June, Nicaea. Eusebius the historian, the famous Eusebius, is there. And he records the opening words of this council. Constantine the emperor is there. He opens the council. He stands up, and these are these are his words I'm quoting from Eusebius's account. Constantine says this. This is an exact quote. "'Discord in the church I consider more fearful and more painful than any other war. As soon as I, by the help of God, had overcome my enemies,' I believed that nothing was more necessary than to give God thanks in common joy with those whom I had liberated. But when I heard of your division, I was convinced that this matter should by no means be neglected. And in the desire to assist by my service, I have summoned you without delay. I shall, however, feel my desire fulfilled only when I see the minds of all united in that peaceful harmony which you, as the anointed of God, must preach to others." Delay not, therefore, my dear friends. Delay not, servants of God. Put away all causes of strife and loose all knots of discord by the laws of peace. Now, we can understand Constantine's desire for peace. In fact, there's no doubt that every bishop who was present at that council desired peace that day, and rightly so. But some of them were willing to sell the gospel itself for peace. And that's unbiblical. To sell out the truth for the sake of peace is unbiblical. Scripture says, 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 and 15, What fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what concord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has he that believeth with an infidel? In other words, Scripture's saying, if we have a dispute between brethren, between people who are in Christ and committed to Christ, We can resolve it. We must resolve it, because our Lord commands us to live in unity with one another. But, at the same time, Scripture warns us that grievous wolves will enter the flock, and we dare not make peace with the wolves. So when somebody's doctrine is so seriously askew that it corrupts the doctrine of Christ or obscures the gospel, when somebody's proposing a different Christ then souls are placed in eternal peril. And when that's the issue, peace is not an option. Peace is not the primary goal. What is the casting down of the false doctrine? Now, strange as this may sound to us, most of the bishops at the Council of Nicaea did not see the deadly peril that underlay Arius's doctrine. They, they just didn't see that it was that dangerous. Now, at this council, there are four basic groups. Just try to imagine, they're in this big room, they're sitting around the table, there's probably 150 guys there, and they divide up into four factions. First, there are the Arians, led by Arius. These are the committed Arians. They're, they're on board with this doctrine, they're committed to it. Second, there were those who sided with Alexander. This was the smallest group that was represented there. They believed in the orthodox doctrine of the deity of Christ. They were the outspoken enemies of Arianism. And one young man in this group stood out. He was the secretary to Bishop Alexander. This was Athanasius. This is where Athanasius comes into the story. He's part of the second group, the small group, the minority faction. Third there was a group that were sympathetic with Arius, but not quite ready to be excommunicated with him. They were closet Arians. They bought into this doctrine maybe in their hearts, but they were prepared to recant if necessary to keep their, their status as bishops. And the leader of this group was Eusebius of Nicomedia. Eusebius, the, not the, this is the Arian guy, not the historian, not the famous one, but the Arian And he was a closetarian. He was prepared to recant if he had to. And then the fourth group, this was the largest group of all, they were uncommitted to any position. They came to this thing not really knowing where they stood. And the leader of this group was the other Eusebius, the famous Eusebius, the historian. Some of this group were probably waiting to see how the current would flow before they declared where they stood. This group was driven by one goal. Their goal was to devise a creed that would conceal rather than heal this division. And this was the majority view. By the way, does that sound familiar? Conceal rather than heal the division? This mindset is certainly alive and well today. This is exactly what was done by the framers of the Evangelical Catholics Together Accord. They found language that both sides could affirm. It didn't matter to them that the Catholics and Protestants hold contradictory views on the gospel, on how we're saved, on justification by faith, what they did was devise a statement that was ambiguous enough that both sides could put their, their own twist, their own spin on it, and consent to it. And so they all agree, not on the meaning, but on this ambiguous creed. That is exactly the kind of unity that most of the people present at the Council of Nicaea were hoping to achieve. So just to keep it straight, you have these four groups, Arius and the Arians, Athanasius and a handful of Orthodox men. Eusebius the Arian and a group of Arianizing fellow travelers, the guys that wanted to, that believed in Arianism but wanted to keep it a secret. And then Eusebius, the biggest group, Eusebius the historian and the guys who were uncommitted and wanted to just gloss the thing over. In fact, here's the interesting thing. Ultimately, all four groups, uh, three of these four groups, let's say, three of these four groups, everybody except the Athanasians, everybody except the Orthodox guys, we were hoping to draft a confession of faith in language so vague that everybody could affirm it. That was the goal here. The stage was set for the selling out of orthodoxy. The church was on the brink of making the incarnation an optional doctrine. That's how serious this was. Now at this council much discussion took place about the use of extra-biblical language the word homoousios came up. It's not in the Bible, they said. How can we put it in our creed? And most of the delegates wanted to draft a creed that contained no extra biblical terminology. In fact, Eusebius, the historian, this is the famous Eusebius, tells us that he proposed this creed. He records the creed he proposed. He put this on the table. He said, here's what I propose. I think everybody can agree with this. This was his creed. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, God of God, light of light, Life of life, his only son, the firstborn of all creatures, begotten of the Father, beginning in eternity, before time was, by whom everything was created, who became flesh, etc., etc., etc. You recognize all of those are biblical phrases. But there's one that says he's God of God, another who says he begins in eternity. Another one that says, rather, that he's the firstborn of all creatures, and by putting their spin on it, both sides could have, could have affirmed this. In fact, Eusebius records that no one disputed anything in this confession. He was proud of that. This is precisely what he was aiming at, a confession that no one would dispute. But the emperor, Constantine, was there. He was not a theological genius. The man was a novice when it came to matters of theology. But he was a politician. And he understood, despite his earnest desire for peace... He at least understood that without a creed that would resolve the disagreement, if we just gloss it over, paste it over, all this arguing and discord was going to continue. That was Constantine's concern. And at this point, it was Constantine himself who proposed that, why don't we, he said, why don't we just take Eusebius's creed here and just let's add that little word homoousios. Constantine proposed that. The interesting thing is he had sympathies with Arius, but he had a bishop who was there with him, an older man who was sort of whispering in his ear. Most historians believe that it was the bishop who whispered in Constantine's ear and said, hey, I think you can resolve this if you just say, hey, let's take that creed and put homoousios in it. And since Constantine was thought to be generally sympathetic to the Arians, and since the closet Arians, this group led by Eusebius the Arian, not the famous one but the other guy, They wanted to keep secret the fact that they were Arians. And here the emperor stands up, of all people, and says, hey, let's just stick this word in there. This word was adopted into the creed because all these compromising Arians were afraid to stand up. Here was where Arius himself had a chance to take his stand and say, this is truth and everything else is an abomination, and he didn't do it. And they opted for this creed. And the Nicene Creed, therefore, became the first and foundational document against the Aryan heresy. It became This became such a watershed for the church that when we study church history, we talk about anti-Nicene Christianity and post-Nicene Christianity. This Nicene Council was a watershed for the church. In the three decades that followed, there were other councils and other creeds, and some of these other creeds were blatantly Aryan. But this was the ruling of this first ecumenical council. And because of that, it carried much weight. Here's the Nicene Creed. I'm going to read it to you. It's short. They said, this is the creed they adopted. We believe in one God, the the Father Almighty, maker of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten of his Father, the substance of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance, the Greek word was homoousios, one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, both which is in heaven and in the earth, who for us, men and our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered the third day, he rose again, ascended into heaven, and he shall come again to judge both the living and the dead. That was the creed. That was the creed proper. And the Athanasians succeeded in getting this anathema, attached to it. Here was the anathema. And whosoever shall say that there was a time when the Son of God was not, or that he was begotten or that and was not, or that he was made of things that were not, or that he is of a different substance or essence from the Father, or that he is a creature, or that he is subject to change or conversion, all that so say the Catholic and Apostolic Church anathematizes them. Now... That is That looks like a humiliating defeat for the Arians, doesn't it? That was as definitive a renunciation of Arianism as you could put in words. Arius himself declined to sign the Nicene Creed. Eusebius the Arian, the, the closet Arian, attempted to disguise his position. He signed the Creed, but he declined to sign the Anathema. Typical. The truth is... This council, as important as it is, represented only the beginning of the Arian heresy. This was only the launch pad for this whole controversy. This council did not end the dispute because the Arians were so determined to spread their doctrine, regardless of the council's decision, and if they couldn't convince the council of their doctrines, they'd make a grassroots appeal. Isn't that what heresy always does? And in the years that followed, Bishop Alexander died... Athanasius became the bishop of Alexandria. Athanasius instantly became the target of the Arians' persecution. Lies were spread about to undermine his reputation. He was even accused falsely of murder, and all these charges were proved false. But in his lifetime, Athanasius was actually kicked out of Alexandria and banished to different parts of the empire five different times. The rest of his life, he was persecuted for his stance. And meanwhile, Arianism continued to grow at an astonishing rate. Constantine, the emperor, became frustrated when this Nicene Council decision didn't put an end to the controversy. And so he turned against Athanasius because Athanasius refused to receive Arius back into fellowship unless Arius recant of his heresy. And in 336, Constantine banished Athanasius, and announced that he, Constantine, would personally restore Arius to his office, his former rank in the church, going to make him a presbyter again. Athanasius uh, records an interesting incident at this point. The bishop of Constantinople was so distraught over this turn of events that he prayed like this. He said, Lord, if Arius is to be received tomorrow, take me first out of this world. But if thou wilt have pity, take Arius away, so that the heresy and impiety may not enter in. And do you know what happened? That very same day, Arius dropped dead of cholera. The day before Constantine was supposed to put him back in his office, he dropped dead. Arianism, the heresy, continued to spread. Jerome... You've heard the name Jerome. Jerome was a great biblical scholar who who lived during this time. Jerome said it like this. He said, the whole world awoke suddenly with a groan to find itself Arian. It was like Arianism took over. Despite the Nicene Council's decision, Arianism swept through the church by sheer persistence. Virtually every single bishop except Athanasius either compromised or adopted Arianism. Athanasius was left standing alone against the whole world. That's where this Athanasius contramundum comes in. Now, the rest of the story is fascinating, too, but I have to skip to the end because I'm already over time. The credit for the final defeat of Arianism belongs primarily to Athanasius because he refused to give up. When the people pointed out that the whole world was against him, he just said, then, I'm against the world. And he kept writing and preaching against the errors of Arianism He built his case for orthodoxy on Scripture and Scripture alone. Incidentally, this whole episode argues very strongly against the Roman Catholic doctrine of tradition. You know, Catholics teach that the Word of God is not just Scripture, but it's Scripture plus tradition. And they teach that tradition was given to the apostles and passed down through a succession of bishops in the church to where we have it today. And what the Catholic Church says, what we teach today is simply that tradition that was passed down through all these bishops. Well one big glitch in their story is the Arian controversy because all the bishops of that era denied the deity of Christ. And the only guy that stood against it was Athanasius. He was the one bishop that held out against it. And here's the interesting part. Athanasius did not build his case on tradition. He never said, Arianism is wrong because our tradition teaches otherwise. He made his case from Scripture and from Scripture alone. In the end... Arianism collapsed under the sheer weight of biblical authority. Athanasius died in about 373. But by 381, less than a decade after his death, his writings had circulated with such influence that the emperor convened another council. This was the first council of Constantinople. And that council finally dealt the death blow to Arianism. From that day on, the Council of Constantinople until this, Arius' views have almost been universally deemed heresy. And wherever Arianism has surfaced, Jehovah's Witnesses is just one example, but there are others. There are others today who hold to Arian views. In every case, it turns out to be an unmitigated spiritual disaster. Now that brings me to my fourth point, where I'd hope to spend the majority of my time... <laughs> Reviewing the biblical arguments against Athana- that Athanasius employed against Arianism. And I'll do that next week. Rather than court it, cut it cut it short here or just try to summarize it for you, I'll take this up here next week and review what is really an impressive array of biblical arguments that Athanasius brought against Arianism. And that's where we'll look, Lord willing. In the meantime, if you're interested in a biblical response to Arianism... There is a tape over there called The Deity of Christ that addresses this very issue. So if you just can't wait till next week to find find out how to refute this biblically, you can get that tape over there. Otherwise, be back next week and uh, we'll go through these biblical arguments. Let me close in prayer real quickly. Lord, we see so clearly in this account of this how this heresy arose and was put down. We see so clearly your hand sovereignly orchestrating events despite overwhelming opposition to raise up a man like Athanasius to refute with your powerful word this wretched heresy and we pray that you would help us to be people like Athanasius committed to the truth of your word and courageous in our stand for it we pray in Jesus name amen